Rio de Janeiro With a big man Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Frio de Janeiro. This is a bit imam, and it's fantastic to have another episode where this time we will be discussing Fremantle, a town, a beautiful place in Western Australia that's really close to my heart. And I can't think of two better people to talk about than the most Fremantle Australian people that I know, two really close friends of mine, Michael and Lucy Della. So I went to high school with them. They're incredibly... Uh, amazing go-getters. They are tour guides, um, hospitality entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, uh, nearly got tongue-tied there, but we had an amazing conversation which would inspire a lot of people to take action in their lives. They've got incredible travel stories, uh, exploring through the Kimberley region of northwest Western Australia, which is one of the most pristine, amazing places on this planet. And Michael and Lucy are dinky die Australian Fremantle people. They live in the town. They have a tour company and are doing an amazing job in engaging with the community there. So I'm really excited about um, listeners from all around the world getting to be introduced to Fremantle through this conversation that we have and also people from within Australia that listen in and might actually be interested in taking one of these tours with this great couple. So without further ado, enjoy Michael and Lucy Della from Fremantle Tours and the cafe Mostly Sometimes. Michael and Lucy Della, absolute pleasure to be here at your place in Fremantle. I love this uh, part of the world and uh, thank you for having me here. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. So how did we actually meet? Maybe you can paint a picture about how the three of us all know each other. So the three of us met at high school, good old Applecross Senior High School. I think my first memory of you is your run for school counsellor. Maybe (laughs) a bid for a bid. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and I reckon footy oval, king of the pack. That's my, like, first recording of you. Yeah, Yeah, it's quite amazing when you can remember the first time you met someone, and I definitely remember some really positive people, and that was definitely you guys. And, you know, we met in high school, so that was later later on in our childhoods. What was your upbringing like as a a kid? Where did you start off with Michael, maybe, if you can go first? Yeah, I um, I grew up here in in Fremantle and moved around a bit between my mum and my dad's, and we... Mum and I lived in South Korea a bit, uh, which was amazing. And, yeah, we had a, a lot of fun. I lived at my mum's mostly, and we got to hang out heaps. And then we uh, moved around to Melville from primary school at Spielwood Alternative, which was very alternative, and then sent it back in towards Applecross. Yeah, we had a great time. Lucy? And I was born in Edinburgh, which I think you know, maybe, um... So I lived in Scotland until I was seven. And then my dad, he was originally born in Tasmania. So after I'd done a few years of schooling in Scotland, they decided to move back to Australia, back for my dad. And me and mum move over here for the first time. And it was great. Always lived in Perth since we've been in Australia. And it's really nice to have grown up somewhere else but to still very much feel now like Fremantle in Australia is home Mm -hmm. and it's nice to go back and visit the UK but you know Freo is definitely home now which is lovely. 
And uh, what were your interests growing up, the both of you? Oh, I was mad keen on animals. My mum used to read me Australia's Most Venomous instead of like stories at bedtime. So I was always into that, and that led into my passion through schooling, which is conservation biology and animals and sport. I played a heap of sport, footy and hockey, tennis, lacrosse, all lots of running. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> and I've always, I guess, as far as I always really liked going to school when I was a kid. It was a real um, something I've always really enjoyed and was never really a big team sport player at all <laughs> much more but um I really enjoyed dancing so I always did dancing from when I was in Scotland and here all the way through to my second year of uni so that's something that I really really love and it's not something I do as much now but it's definitely like a foundation of a lot of the things that I'm into now mm-hmm. like music and yoga kind of stem from that growing up very interesting how what you do as a kid sometimes shapes what you end up doing Mm -hmm. and we'll fast forward a little while because uh, we went through high school and then there was a big period where we weren't in touch but that's where i understand your relationships blossomed and you went on some amazing adventures so i'd love to start um, getting into that where did you go after high school well we were lucky enough to um, start dating in year 10 and start of year 11 and we were really lucky that over the end of high school and started, we both went to university, we grew together and went on the same path rather than maybe splitting up. So we were really lucky in that sense. And then we were solidified together with our love of travel. And we, the first trip we went on, I always will remember because we started off by going with about 13 other people from Applecross to a bit of a, um, a rite of passage one week holiday to Kuta. In Bali, which, you know, with a few of the usual suspects. And then we left them there to uh, continue on. And we went to Europe and had an amazing time. But I was only 17. Michael was 18. So we were pretty young then. And I think as soon as we came back from that trip, we were over there for five weeks. And we went to Holland and France and England and Scotland. We were pretty much hooked on the next time we were going to go away. And we did probably one of the greatest holidays we did around that time is we did three month camping trip on the east coast of Australia because I think a lot of people our age at that time were taking a gap year from uni and doing the UK Europe thing and we thought and which I think is something that we've really carried on to today which is not enough people explore their own backyard and so we did what any Fremantle hippies would do we bought a van and drove east and kind of hoped for the best mm. so that was really good fun it was my Omar and Opa's camper van um, so it still had the sticker on the back like square dancing is cool and we wow. cruised across uh, but we got stuck over there was some fun chaos but we we got through it all we had to ship the car back and we got stuck in the floods in Ipswich wow. uh, for about a month which was trying and then we ended up buying a Greyhound bus ticket and doing the last bit of our trip on the bus and buying a tent. So that was quite interesting. And um, we, since then, we've been to a few other sort of standout holidays, I guess, that have really sort of shaped things today. Like we did an amazing trip in Vietnam and Cambodia. And I think that holiday when we were in Vietnam was probably one of the best countries we've ever visited, one of the best holidays we've ever been on. Yeah, easy. And I think it's 
it's always shaped what we're doing with our time. So we think, where are we going next? Mm -hmm. So we'd gear our work life or when we're at university, maybe we focus a bit too much on paying for our next trip and maybe not as much on our studies. But it meant every year nearly we went overseas for five weeks or so at least. And But that's 100% shape what we do today. So that's perfect. I think um, most recently our trip to the US and again we got a car and went up the west coast and then just last year we went to up to Karajini camping trip for six weeks in the four wheel drive and that was spectacular. But I think what's also really important to point out in that time of our life is we moved twice to different locations and that the times that we did that in 2014 when we went up to El Cuestro um, in the East Kimberley to work and then again when we were in Margaret River um, though during those times it was so that Michael could really solidify his guiding experience and that's where he really learned at El Cuestro like what it was to be a tour guide and then for me working in the hospitality sector at both those places really solidified again for me that that was you know what I wanted to be doing and to be doing it in a place that demands like a high standard which was really cool yeah I think that we got married finished uni got married that January and then moved up to El Cuestro in the Feb we got the okay when we we're on our honeymoon climbing Bluff Knoll wow so we're straight up there and it was we did our interview on the phone in the car park at the base <laughs> of Bluff Knoll because it was the only place we had any signal <laughs> And we got this job and I'd never tour guided, but I'd come from a background of conservation biology, loving the environment and loving people through my other work in retail. So I thought I was a shoe in but I really only got the job because Lucy is just such a hospitality queen and just kills it so well. It was great. We both had something that they wanted and that's a lot of the resort remote locations. They do really like employing couples, not because it's the better workers or anything, but because of the isolation and the remoteness, it's good because you already have that support network when you go up there. Um, a small bit of context, I guess. El Cuestro is a cattle station that's about a million square acres. Wow. And it's... 110 k's. 110 k's east of Cunners, which is about 3,000 k's northeast of Perth. So we were closer to Asia than we were Perth and closer to the Northern Territory than anything else. And there were about 20 staff when we arrived. Yeah. And that peaked at about 100. So very remote. You just had to do everything. It was exciting. So you guys had a double degree in, in your own um, academic pursuits, but also in travel, yes. you know, going to Vietnam and Eastern Australia. Before we get into the, the outback, which is very exciting, um, tell me what was your favourite part of Eastern Australia when you visited? Byron. Byron was the first spot that we stopped where we both got off the bus at this point and looked at each other and then said, should we uh, like postpone our semester at uni? We both looked at each other and have to stay longer straight away and we loved the place. But then we really experienced a lot along the way there. The wine regions of South Australia was really cool as well. Yeah, I think Byron Bay was a standout for us because... I guess almost like some cop-out reasons and the similarities there to Fremantle. It's really, you know, small, coastal, really open-minded communities, a lot of like alternative culture there, which is really interesting and exciting. But I also really, really liked Adelaide, which 
um, both surprised both of us. Okay. And there was a lot of, I think it was quite comfortable because we were young. It was like similar to Perth in its size and its scale, but you didn't have to drive far to really experience some diverse stuff like the wine regions and the hiking and everything that was on offer so close to the city, mm. which was great. Right. But we've not been back since, and it's on our list to go back during the tour down under. And, yeah. Go watch some cycling. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. Surprised you're not cycling yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about the Outback, because that's really exciting. And for listeners, um, some who might not have even been to Australia before, you got to experience one of the most remote parts of the world, one of the absolute pristine wildernesses. I don't even know if that's a word, wildernesses, but um, it seems like it works in this context. <laughs> and I want to know about what it was like for you, that transition to going to El Cuestro and your initial thoughts when you were there. Uh, it was... We've been remote. We'd been on You'd our been own. You'd been remote. I've been quite I don't remote. think I'd really been that remote but before. Jeez, there's an eye-opener. You get off the plane in the airport, there's a sign saying, no mangoes as carry-on luggage. You're like, where am I? <laughs> There's cane toad signs. And we got picked up by like the groundskeeper in one of the utes and we were driving out to the station and it just felt like we were driving for days and it's only like an hour, an hour and a half drive out from Kananara and you just are so isolated. And I remember arriving there and, you know, when people talk about crocodiles and snakes and bulls and you don't know whether or not like they're joking because it's so casual to these people because it's such a way of life when someone's like oh you can swim here because there's only freshies meaning there's only freshwater crocodiles and implying that there there's no salties saltwater crocodiles and then you know other parts where they're like don't go too close to the edge um yeah it was just like nothing you've ever witnessed before and i think it was really great when we first arrived up there Um, like Michael said before, there was only 20 staff members and a surprising element of it that you don't think is going to exist is this idea that if you want to catch up with someone to, you know, work out together or meet up for a coffee, you just go around to their donga where they're sleeping, you knock on their door. You know, you don't text people, you organize a time to meet up with someone and you have to stick to it. You know, we often say that we were the eight months or so we lived there. We were the least connected we've ever been. There's no mobile reception. There's no internet. We were writing letters to our best mates back home <laughs> and to my, my pop because he lived and worked up there when he was my age. But at the same time, we were the most connected because you'd literally write on our big whiteboard in the staff room, going on a hike tomorrow at 10, anyone who's free come down. So it was really inclusive, mm. really strong feeling um, to the place. But also, you know, I used to have to drive from where we stayed at the station out to the homestead, which is where I worked, which was sort of like a bit secluded and quite high end, you know, it cost like thousands of dollars a night to stay there. And, you know, you're driving at night and I've never done anything like that. Like I learned how to drive a manual up there, driving these old 80 series cruisers and there's kangaroos and owls and bulls and cows and dust and... Yeah, you just when any anything happened that was what would be quite small and easy to overcome in you know the CBD anywhere when you're out there like you know a flat tire or anything can just be 
massive. Like you have to be so prepared for any situation because it's just, yeah, more high risk, I guess. And I've always loved those scenarios. I love throwing myself in. So I was out gorge, going, taking gorge walks and hiking, taking boat cruises where there's these crocs or four-wheel drive trips. And I was really lucky because I'm little. I got to go on the helicopter a lot and take um, guests on these helicopter tours. So that was these things you never expect. Um, and and then, I, then Lucy was a little bit more reserved. But I remember I, we said we knew you'd completely accustomed to it when you were walking down the stairs I was working at the homestead and they have these like private dining stations, I guess you call them, little areas where, so the homestead looks out over the Chamberlain River. It's beautiful. You're like up on the cliff and then you're down, you've got the river below and the valley on the other side. And yeah, you could walk down these stairs to a little private dining setting. And I remember I was running these meals down the stairs and there was a snake on the step and I was just like, oh, look, a snake and walked over it. Like, better, <laughs> better make sure I don't step on it was my first reaction as opposed to, oh, no, there's a snake. Everybody panic. I was like, oh, look, it's just another snake. And, oh. yeah. So what were your um, particular roles? So you were looking after tourists who were going and El Crescio is a quite a high end um, wilderness retreat. So what in particular would you do in a typical day there? So my role was a food and beverage attendant in the technical, you know, black and white sense at the homestead, which is like boutique accommodation. There's nine rooms and they all basically have, they're like little private huts where you look out, you know, from your outdoor shower into the Australian outback um, when they were filming Australia, like um, the crew, you know, stayed there, which is really cool. And So a typical day, you drive out, make everyone breakfast. Everyone could – the whole philosophy there was even though you're so isolated and you're in the Australian outback, a lot of the guests who came there still got and still expected a very high level of service. So basically you didn't say no to anyone ever. So, you know, you're making beautiful a la carte breakfasts and lunches. And for us, a big part of our day was helping people choose what tours they wanted to do whilst they were there and try to get out of the guests what we could do to help them have the best time there. A lot of it was quite much, you know, there was definite elements of, you know, cleaning, tidying and serving, but also you got to have great chats with people and meet people from all over the world who've come, they might only be coming to Australia for a fortnight and they spend, you know, a week of it at El Questro. So this is, we were helping paint the image of the Australian outback, but through a very, very um, boutique eye. And then it was up to the tour guides, which is what Michael's role was to basically take them on this big range of tours and they would show them a bit more of the real side out of the comfort of the homestead, which was, you know, cocktails by the infinity pool kind of thing. Cocktails to crocodiles. Yeah. Exactly. It was, we, I got to work really close with the people who were staying at the homestead, as well as the public who were in caravans and camping, so a lot of local Australian residents. So it was this great mix. And I, we never knew our roster. So our day-to-day changed every day. You didn't know what you're doing the next day until 6 o'clock the night before. So it was a bit, it was really strange for most normal jobs. Mm. You know, if you're going to work, how long, what time you have to get up. Sometimes I'd get our roster at six o'clock at the dinner hall and it would say I had a a bird watching tour. So I have to be up at five o'clock. So off to bed. 
and that was that. And so I got to take things from bird watching tours, four drive trips, a lot of gorge walk hiking, which was really fantastic with big groups or private groups. And one that I enjoyed, loved those sunset tours. But I really enjoyed one called a bush culture and history tour. And that was talking about the culture of the land of the First Nations people up there, as well as how the station was used. So it really got, and you could just drive around wherever you wanted, which is so good. You can do whatever you liked, as long as you got back to the place on time. So you could choose your own itinerary. So that gave us the first glimpse of being a tour guide. And then everyone would ask, you know, what are some of the wild memories, wild moments you had there? You know, getting lost in the outback. And, um, you know, if I, if I was in the bush with any, anyone, it will be you two. Yeah. Be, the ultimate Thanks. people to, to go with. A mix of Steve Irwin, mix, mix of Russell Coy, <laughs> and Malcolm Douglas. And I'm yeah. quite sensible. Like, I always joke that I'm quite risk-adverse because I really like going to all these beautiful places and... You know, I'm happy to spend many, many nights a row in a tent and roughing it out bush. But then Michael's the one who always seems to take it to the next, the next step. <laughs> well, probably my most highest misadventure or adventure when we were there was when we do these little boat cruises. The private boats are a little dinghy and you had an electric outboard, so that way you didn't disturb the peace. So you're just buzzing along. It's really gorgeous. And then you turn around. There's always a breeze against you. And we ran out of battery power. So we had to putt really slowly and it was getting a bit worse and a bit darker. And we got to the edge and I had to get out of the boat and wade and push the boat through. And this is one of the spots where, like Lucy said before, it's okay because they're only freshwater crocodiles. Well, there's still a crocodile. And it borders onto the next lagoon, a little way off. Um, definitely had some salties, some saltwater crocs. So... It's just one of those occasions where you thought, oh, this is, this is fine. And then once I got back to camp that night, everyone said, you did what? <laughs> and then I realized, oh, that was stupid. Mostly just really stupid. And I, I had the record. You live to tell the tale. I do. And I have the record for the most flat tires for the, <laughs> the eight months we were there. I think I had 10 in total. So I can change a tire. He had to buy many, out. many cartons of beer. It's a practical skill. And, you know, you said about being silly there, but uh, you do get some tourists who get stuck out in the bush. If you watch Russell Coyt, All Aussie Adventures, yes. he always talks about them. Um, what would be your advice for people who actually go out to the outback? We had to think about if we were going tomorrow, you know, what we would take to go to the outback. And I think people need to be prepared. And I think people get really excited when they come traveling and you know maybe an opportunity presents themselves and they're like yes excellent let's roll with it I've got my thongs I'm ready let's go and I think it definitely does take you know there's a lot of merit in slowing down and stopping and thinking about where you're going I think you need to make sure that you the most important thing we got from when we're at El Cuesto is you need to tell someone where you're going you need to tell them what time you think you'll be back and that way, if something happens when you're out there on your adventures and you don't come back and then someone will come looking for you. And you can do that when you're camping at a caravan park. You know, there might be some lovely grey nomads next to you who are going to stay at the caravan all day. And you'll say to them, hey, we're just going to go hike this gorge over there. And if we're not back by dinner time, 
maybe let someone know. We still do that now when we go for hikes in the city. We text our parents and just say, hey, so you know we're going here, be home by six, I'll text you then. Mm-hmm. And that's really drummed in because that we had to go out on some rescues in different circumstances and you just think if we didn't know even roughly where they were going, it would be pretty dire. And then water. Water is yeah, really good you know. to take and also speakers. I think it's also good to be prepared when you are planning your music for your big adventures that Australia is very big and lots of Australia has no internet. And very lately people have... You get very caught out if you're only on the streaming services, so you've got to get the CD player out, yeah, maybe get, in the car. Get that OGS cable out, you'll be set. Nice. And coffee. That's we have also the top a very out. strict ritual on plunger coffee when we go camping. We've got a little <laughs> setup. It's great. Can imagine. Definitely. And then uh, how long did you actually spend in El Crestro? We were up there for eight months. And then did you get to explore the rest of the Kimberley? Because it's so vast. It's a huge area. So the east to the west is over a thousand kilometres. But we literally stayed the whole time on the station. I got to drive into town to pick guests up. Um, but we didn't have our own vehicle when we were up there. So we were somewhat stuck, but not in a bad way. So even that in that eight months, we, did, we didn't even do everything we could on the station. Because there's all the main spots and then there was lots of little maybe staff only spots that you knew about or adventures you could go on if you took the precautions and we were lucky enough to do lots of fun things that were really amazing experiences one-off experiences i did a really amazing fixed wing flight while we were there which was beautiful we went over lake argyle and over Pernalulu. Over Pernalulu, which was beautiful, which is the Bungle Bungles. What's a fixed wind flight? Oh, like, so not as... It's so funny up there. The one thing that really surprises you about outback life is how used to you get to helicopters. So when I say just a plane, like a very, very small plane, as opposed to a a helicopter. A very, small helicopter with um, no doors. Because the more common mode of transport up there is a helicopter. Okay. And that's another really great thing we got to do when we were on the station, um... If the helicopter had an empty leg where it would take guests one way and then drop them off somewhere and perhaps on the way back it would be vacant. Um, as a staff member you might get to jump on and get a bit of hitch a bit of a free ride and the landscape from the air just blows your mind. It's the scale. The scale and so the we, isolation. We just had such a phenomenal time just on this one section of the East Kimberley and that got to really you know make you want to go back further and explore it further but it's a long way away and there's lots of places to visit we did go to Wyndham go to the Wyndham Cup which is a horse race on a red dirt track um, we didn't take out best dress we thought our uh, city slickers were going to get it but we didn't but we played heaps of two up, two up after oh okay yeah so very authentic experience oh, I can imagine so you took the Uber helicopter to... Uh, <laughs> to <after. laughs> yeah. Um, and from the Kimberley, you went all the way down from northwest Western Australia to southwest Australia uh, yeah. to Margaret River after that. Mm-hmm. Explain that transition. <laughs> we lived in the East Kimberley. We came back to Perth with grand ambitions of... I wanted to be a tour guide. Now I knew I wanted to be a tour guide and... I drove tour buses up the coast for a little while, but it was really challenging. It was really rewarding work, but I was away from Lucy, and that's not something that we really wanted to do, to be away from each other. 
and the roster's tour guiding out of Perth like that for a um, like for a bus company or something like that is really really full on because they're kind of like a fly in fly out roster but with no fit schedule so you know Michael would be away for maybe nine days and then come back for a night and then be away for three days so it started to I said to Michael when it stops being the best job you've ever had because it was he got to swim with whale sharks and hang out with backpackers and stay in hostels I was like when it stops being the best job you've ever had we might need to have a look at how else we can make this work and we I think that's really important because we've always talked about where we want to be moving what we want to be doing and as soon as that point hit I said sorry see you later and then we did a little bit more traveling that we'd saved up from there and we decided we're going to move down south we'll rent our little house out that we're sitting in now and we're doing it because we always make plans and often we make too many plans and don't do them so we we really stuck by our guns we went on holiday to america and we made sure that we couldn't come back and stay by renting our place out so when we got home from a five-week trip in america we had nowhere to live because <laughs> we had someone living in our home as a lot of young people you go back from holiday we didn't have any money i guess we had negative money technically we didn't have a car and we didn't have any jobs because we quit our <laughs> so we basically decided <laughs> to make sure oh it sounds so bad man. so we made sure that we would move to marg's uh we'll move down south we didn't we weren't fussed we were like anywhere between like bunbury and augusta was kind of even albany we were thinking about a bit further around the coast um, and then we came home and it was really nice because as Michael sort of touched on before, you know, my, I had quite a extensive experience working, you know, in different hospitality scenes and we thought, okay, well I might apply for a job and if I get that, then we'll choose that area and Michael will try find some work. And then it felt like two minutes after we got back, Michael had um, I made some... myself a job. Yes. Yeah. I got a, had to drive down south for a trial. So it's like a three-hour drive just to go for a little check you out. Um, and I hit it off with my would-be boss. Really, well. I was guiding the Cape to Cape track, which is a 135-kilometer walking track. So it takes seven days. Um, I'd actually done it a few years prior with a few of our mates, of Jim and Tom mm-hmm. and Dom. So the four of us did it. Seven days hiking, carrying everything on your back, all your food, all your water, your tents. It, I was probably only 25 then. It was the, the most challenging thing physically I've still ever done and the most rewarding. And the, the bond that we got out of that as friends was I have to, inter- have to interrupt there because I've seen photos of that bond, uh, which is on many of these boys' <laughs> fridges because I've got a photo of them overlooking this pristine close line. And um, none of them have any pants on. We've <laughs> <laughs> got our boots on, though. Yeah. It's, it's a really iconic photo that probably could be Mr. January in one of the Australian calendars. Oh, or yeah. Definitely. Gosh, that would go down well. And so evidently we, there was also dolphins. Yeah, so we, just that, the just, icing on the cake. Just before that photo was taken, we'd seen <laughs> dolphins. So we were all hollering and whooping, forgetting the fact <laughs> that we're all stark naked. But yeah. we were lucky enough to get this work. And that instigated, oh, well, we have to get a car we have to find somewhere to live when we get down there and we've always sort of thrived in those adverse conditions you just got to make it happen and we did then so the job the guiding job that michael had got was based out of margaret river 
And before we'd gone to America, I'd been at a cafe in South Rio for two and a half years, which I'd loved. I was working at Little Lafroy's and I was the manager there. And the whole pro, like it had been so great. And I'd learned a whole bunch working there. I'd really sort of, you know, step things up a notch, but I was tired and a bit maybe unfocused with what I wanted to do work wise. And I said to Michael, I just want to make coffee by the beach. I don't even want to hand in my resume. Like I don't want them to know the things that the other things that I've done. I just want to go there and be like, Hey, can you casually employ me? And I found this beautiful job at a little cafe in Narrabup, which is like the beach at Margaret river. And it was exactly that, like making coffee, you can see whales from where you're you can see whales, you know, <laughs> like, it's just, phenomenal. it was beautiful. And you know, on your lunch break, you'd go down for a swim and that kind of thing. And it was cool because Michael would often pop in there as well. Cause they did like the catering for his work. So it was really nice. Um, but when we first moved to, it took us a while to like find our tribe down there. It was, yeah, yeah it was way they? harder than we thought when we moved to Mount River. So there was these, this, like we said about Equestria, we were the most isolated, but at the same time most connected. And then we almost felt the opposite in Margaret River, that we were actually still very close to Perth. And there was this, Margaret River is a town of about 13,000 people. So there's a lot of stuff going on, but it really felt like it was just us. Mm-hmm. And thankfully we do really well in our own company. Um, but it was a really unexpected challenge. We, we make friends really easily. We're pretty personable, fun people. And it was like, oh, this is hard and it's raining. But then, yeah, my, it was really cool because Michael got to work for a great small business down there and really enhance his guiding skills. And while I was there, I, the company that owned the cafe by the beach where I was just doing my like four days a week, cruising in, cruising out. Yeah. Um, they also ran weddings and events in my river and they eventually cottoned on that perhaps I had a few little tricks up my sleeve and they offered me a function operation manager role, which I took and it was awesome. It was super full on for me because I'd never done anything quite so back of house heavy. You know, I had emails and phone calls and, you know, all these kind of things that were all really new to me. But again, I learned so much and I don't think we'd be able to do like some of the things that we've done since then if I hadn't have been thrown into that sort of more corporate end of the hospitality business, which was really cool. And then guiding work being as it is, is quite seasonal, which is something that is part of the appeal to us in some ways. But it meant when Michael's work got a bit quiet, he ended up doing loads of events with me. So mm, we, I got to become Lucy's almost like three IC. So there was our mate, who was Lucy's second in charge. And then Lucy was telling me everything about every single one of these weddings each night. And I said, I might as well come work with you. Like, there's no point in me sitting at home. I can come in and do a better job than some people. And let's just get in there. So that was the first time we worked really closely together. Um, and we, like we've said already, we just, we do really work pretty well together. You'd hope so by now. And I was always joking. We were, there was a period there where I had three jobs but I was effectively unemployed. I couldn't get hours at any of them. So even being a key to a guide with one business, um, they're doing our driving for a wine tour business and this function work, there still wasn't always work available. So we actually moved into a, a caravan 
on some people's property. We just found them on Gumtree. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, we didn't have much we'd money, been living you know? in a granny flat in Margaret River and then we decided we wanted something a bit more authentic. So we moved closer to town with this family who had this beautiful like hectare block that backed um, down onto the river and they had this old caravan that completely needed refurbishing and we did work for accommodation for them. So we didn't, we had this amazing opportunity where we didn't have to pay any rent, but we did roughly like say two hours a day of work in exchange for the accommodation. So they had uh, three kids and they both worked full time and, you know, helped them plant the veggies, do the cleaning, wow. all that kind of stuff. So it was an amazing opportunity and that time really enabled us to save some money. And focus. And focus. Really, there wasn't much... We were living in a caravan that had a square meterage of about six, six square meters, including the bed. <laughs> it had a pump action tap, no toilet, no hot water. Yeah. It wasn't we, we got it wasn't to use there. their amenities, obviously, in the house. <laughs> it was, so it was this amazing experience. And again, a challenging one that just sort of focuses you to grow and think maybe a bit more objectively about what you're, what you're doing with your time. So it was great. And then what did you think about that? And how did it bring you here? So we we always kind of blissfully reminisce, I guess, on um, our time in America. We'd really solidified that we knew we were moving in the direction of wanting to own our own business. Like we'd felt really strongly about that. And initially we'd always anticipated that we'd open a venue, like a, a cafe or a bar or a restaurant. And when I, I think when I just finished working at the Froys, I was like, I'd seen the owners, they're amazing and they'd work so hard and they're a couple. And I was like, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm ready to do that right now. And we were sitting in Vegas on the strip, drinking margaritas, reminiscing about all the great travels we'd done. We were talking about this bar, uh, this bike tour that we'd done in Paris. Yeah. Uh, with a great company called Fat Tire Bike Tours. I don't know if you've ever done one of their tours, but they're amazing. And that we came up with this ludicrous idea that maybe we could start a tour company instead. That idea of bike tours and cycling since doing that tour back in 2008. Nine. Nine. Always bubbled in the background. Like, oh, wouldn't that be cool in Frio? We love Frio. It's home. That would be cool. Just sitting in the back. And then we're sitting on the strip and in Vegas and we had this money set aside so when we got home we could buy a car. And then we looked at it and we said, do you know what, maybe we could actually give this a crack. Like if we did the maths and thought, yeah, we get some old bikes maybe, do them up, do it all on the cheap within this budget. And we thought, shit, we could do this. Maybe instead of going to Marg's, let's just go home and start a business. And this all comes back to the fact this is why we had a tenant in our house and this is why we've done all those other things so that even though it became apparent to us then what we were maybe wanting to do moving forward, that we still wanted to follow through with this idea of giving Down South a go. And I'm just so grateful that we did purely for the businesses we worked with just gave us such an insight on how you can run a successful business and still have a really good life and have really good work-life balance. And we were able to connect with these people who were not that, like in the scheme of things, not that much older than us, but they had a lot more, you know, they'd done, you know, the extra five, 10 years work. And we were able to just like learn off their wealth of knowledge. And 
we definitely wouldn't have been able to do some of the things that we've done without like the support of them even now like you know yeah we're still mentors we still call mm. our bosses gene my boss like anytime we have to make a big decision i pretty much <laughs> call him up um but they were lucky enough also to give us the support and say while you're in our business we see that you're a good asset let's learn so we got to the end of our season like lucy said super seasonal work coming into the next winter and we're starting to think what we're going to do and we thought oh, the person renting our house is moving out and you know what why don't we move back to perth but it was Give great it crack. also coming back to being in the caravan it was really cool because obviously we didn't have a tv or anything like that so we started while we were down there doing things like getting books on WA out of the library in Margaret River, which by the way is an outstanding library. Very, very good. Notable mention. And we'd sit in the caravan and we'd go, did you know that in this year this happened? And we downloaded our business plan and we, you know, thought about names. And I remember like lying on our mattress on the floor in the caravan Facebook messaging Kat and Dave who used to own Lafroy's, you know, thinking up business names for the... At then, it was just going to be a bike tour company. And, yeah, so lots of fun memories. We did... We always joke that, you know, we did a really good job planning this business. Very thorough, very adult. We tried to tick all the boxes that you should do before you start a business and um, that perhaps with our other side hustles off the business that we've been a bit more like... We were like shit scared of doing something wrong or setting ourselves up for failure. So we really got down into business plans and we to a business of, of Freeman. We weren't afraid of failing, but we but didn't want to sell ourselves short. We wanted to make sure yeah. it was all set up right and we weren't going to get in trouble because mm-hmm. we didn't want to get in trouble. So, so we, what sort of hustle did you have to do? What were the steps to get to where you could have your first tour? <laughs> Because I'm sure there would have been something incredible. But I think we were talking about this just the other week and like some of the biggest things now seem so trivial and some of the things that seemed really trivial then have grown to be obviously like really important factors. But I think as silly as it sounds, like doing the business plan obviously really helps because it focuses you down. But some of the hustle for us was like, how do you make a website? How do you do you buy a website? Do you rent a website? Like, how do you, you rent even, a domain but you don't own the domain? The domain like, all these, you like, get stuck down in it. It was quite challenging. Like, the web for us, you know, where neither of us are extremely tech savvy, you know, we're 28, you know, 26, 28 year olds in 2018. Like, we know how to use a computer. However, the tech side of it really, really stressed us out, which was super funny. And find all the things that were like Michael just touched on the legalities were a bit tricky to navigate your way around the language, like making sure we had the right insurance, making sure that we um, have the right to, you know, run tours around Fremantle and these kind of things. We were quite concerned at ticking all those boxes. And then the other bits were really fun. Like, you know, learning for me, I found learning the content more challenging than Michael, I think, because he already been exposed to learning everything about say the cape to cape or coral bay or at Elquestro, like michael when you move to a new location as a tour guide you just immediately have to learn everything about it because when you're a guide people think you're a, a botanist and a zoologist and you know everything about the weather and what fish you can catch there you just have to know everything yeah. or try i always think you should try to cover everything so we spent from maybe february 
all the way through to November researching. And that's on our hometown. Uh, I'm a fourth generation from Antelite. And was, and the, was the research mainly through the internet or were you talking to people? What sort of ways did you get around it? In Margaret River, we were using the library heaps. We were looking at historical books because we knew the, the scene of Frio, but we didn't know the history, really, the nitty-gritty. And we did a lot of reading of historical books of Fremantle. And then when we moved to, back home to Frio, that's when we could really start having conversations with people with our family, our parents, my parents, my grandparents on both sides, with just other, sitting down. And with people within the community who have facilitated other tours or who help like curate you know programs at like the museums and just being able to chat with people who have such a wealth of knowledge but like everyone we talk to it feels like has their own little story which is beautiful and we're always learning like every tour we do we learn something new which is really cool people are very welcoming (laughs) happy to impart some knowledge on you yes (laughs) I'm really interested in how the uh, Fremantle Council came on board to support you. I understand there were some meetings you have to have early on and, you know, going up to Council House, that would have been a bit nerve-wracking. How did you, how did you we, handle those? We were like, we wanted to make sure we are on the same page. We wanted to be best friends with the Council. We didn't want to annoy them at all. So we got in touch with them super early, before we even had a legitimate business, and said, this is what we'd want to do. And all of a sudden, we're sitting in a boardroom with the mayor of Fremantle, Brad Petty, and some economic development officers, which sounds really full on, but they're actually just super lovely people enabling small business to do well. And I remember walking in and because, you know, since then we've had quite a lot of meetings, but this is one of the first proper sort of meetings we'd had, you know, got all dressed up and we walked into the office. <laughs> we did. We did. We did. Now we just don't. But we walked in and all three of them had like a printout of what we'd sent them and it was annotated. And I was like, these people have sat down and read our baby. Like it was really overwhelming to be like, this is a step that's making it real because you know, you sit and you chat in your living room about what you might be doing. And then when you put the pen to paper, that's a really, you know, that takes time. And then when you show someone else it, you know, you might show a friend or a family member that makes it a little bit more real and you get like a bit more scared of, you know, what, if they're going to like it, if they think it's silly or not. And we showed the council and they came in and I will never forget. We were like walking into the room and Brad sort of said under his breath, the mayor, he was like, Oh, I'm excited to hear about this one. (laughs) And it was like, what are we, this is quite terrifying. We love public speaking and being in front of people but then that was like oh this is this is serious uh, but thankfully they they loved it we have a really strong relationship with them but the the key has been communication always saying hey like we want to do this what do you think and it was cool because every city is different but the city of Fremantle has doesn't charge tourism operators say like an annual fee to essentially it's not like use the public's ways but to we're we're essentially making money off a public space an amenity that everyone has access to but no one necessarily pays for so in a lot of places you you rent it Mm. per se and you have to go through quite a lengthy way to work out how how much your business is using the public space and and this is one of those challenges where you're like "Oh oh how will we even do that but then having a chat with them 
They, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> another tourism operator had been, you know, had come and spoken to them previously and they'd fought really hard to, and to suggest to the council that, you know, it'll be better for Fremantle as a whole and better for business to not have this and, you know, it allows other people to be creative and start things up, which I think is great. It promotes more opportunities rather than yeah. adding another challenge mm-hmm. on the way. And since then, we've been really fortunate because we are, you know, our whole business philosophy, you know, is to show Fremantle in the best light possible. Obviously, that's something that the council are really keen for also. So they will get in touch with us with things like um, Bike Week and the Heritage Festival. We're doing a tour soon with um vision australia so we're taking 40 legally blind people around Fremantle on a tour which is going to be which the council basically suggested that we put our hands up for you know so they asked us to say please put your hand up and do it because we think you're going to be the best way to represent it it's very humbling yeah and um they also helped you uh, did they am i right in knowing that they helped you um get a initial place to set up from well they, they tried so hard like it was that from that first meeting, we went there and because we wanted, you know, what we were doing was looking for a base and they'd come up with a wide range of options and they'd made some amazing suggestions and some of them sort of initially weren't going to be the right fit and then there was one or two that we really seriously followed through and, they, you know, they put so much work into trying to make it work for us and put us in touch with different departments who, you know, seen a sea container here or a disused bike shelter there and... Um, just use toilet block. That just was use the toilet runner. block. That was the front row, which would have been amazing. Um, however, I think it all sort of got to a stage where, with as far as renting a space went, there was quite a lot of bureaucracy, not in a bad negative way, but just, you know, there's many boxes to tick and stages to go through. But they had put us in touch or made us aware of this other really great thing that was going on at the time and was still going on, which is... It's a group called Space... Market. market and they when a big developer buys a building to change into a hotel or to demolish and turn into apartments while the old building sits there this other group comes in and sublets it so to artists or new business people at a really subsidized rent so we got to jump into a, a heritage listed building which is very fitting for our tour business of Frio and uh we got to start our life there. So that was right in the middle of Freo in the old um, police station. That was really fun. So they, they did, they steered us through that whole journey um, and were always available to help us out, which was really good. And then on the bikes, you would steer people through Fremantle. Uh, what, were, what were, what do you remember from your first tour and what do people enjoy the most on these treks through the, the great town? Well, I think we started out with this principle of being a bike tour business we love bikes and we think the best way to discover a new place is by bike you're going fast enough to see a large area but you're not in a metal box like a car so you can hear and you can smell and it's all much more tangible you can relate to a place and walking is good you just don't get as far but also really involved and as a side idea we said oh we should do some walking tours as well and we came up with this tagline bike walk eat drink so we thought well we'll do bike tours walking tours um like progressive dinners and bar tours so that sort of set us up all right well there you go there's four things that we should do let's focus on them and we were really surprised our first tour we got together our friends and some family or friends of friends so we didn't necessarily know them 
gosh, it was nerve-wracking. Like Lucy said, once you put it to paper and someone else reads it, that's one step. And telling your mate what you want to do and they're always so supportive. But then doing it, oh, man, it was... I'm always a bit overconfident with things, but it was very... <laughs> and I, I remember we had this little office space. It feels like so long ago, and it, it was a, like a year ago. Yeah, I guess. not even not a year even. ago. And you know, we stay up all night before we had our official launch day on November one. We we're going to start the tours, and we'd done some private tours with friends and family the week before as like test runs. And we stayed up all night painting the place and getting the shirts and, you know, making sure this looked nice and this looked great. And it's so funny now, like I wouldn't, the things that we were stressed about then, you know, at the end of the day, it was just us out on the bikes or walking with people. And that it was really great to be like, our idea was that you don't really have that many overheads for the bike tour and there's not that too many other stresses. And that really came through because people would rock up and the building was a bit, there was, it looked, our office where we were starting the tours from initially wasn't absolutely fabulous. You know, it wasn't in the most amazing location. And you can see tourists kind of tentatively walking in like, am I in the right place? Google Maps took me to the other side, you know, and they'd get there and it was hot because it was like the height of summer. And, you know, we didn't have water bottle holders on our bikes, you know, like all these kind of things. But then, so say if Michael was going off on a tour, and I wasn't take, wasn't participating in that one. You know, at the beginning, you kind of the vibe was always a bit awkward, and and then the best thing is they come back from the tour, and it's like they're floating on cloud nine because that's the time when we get to show them, you know, what it is that we have to offer, and they always come back, you know, just stoked, and everyone's best friends, and Michael's yeah. a hugger, and he gives them all a hug. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing people have loved the most, we've been surprised in a broad sense, is people love walking to us. Not bike tours as much. Yeah. So we by having <laughs> by having that diversity and thinking, let's just do it. It's um sort of saved our skin. We would be really we'd be we, in a different place if we just we wouldn't be able to focus on Fremantle tours as an entity if it wasn't based around many things, having a few little feathers in our cap. But the thing that people when we're walking around or cycling, they love the stories, the real stories. They don't. We always say that we're Frio fanatics. We're not historians. Like, we love the history or the architecture, but I, I don't want to be sprouting names and dates because when you walk away from a tour, I'm sure we've all done them, you come away with this idea and you never remember the name of the bloke or the woman who said something or the year it happened. Like, does it actually matter that much? Maybe not. Maybe in some circumstances, yes. But you can't, people come away with, with this full understanding, a local's perspective of Frio from our own stories or we visit buildings that my both sets of my grandparents worked in and you can relate their actual stories that we've had sitting down with friends and family and other Frio folk. And then they go, oh, I get it. And the other thing I always notice actually is people, it's a small place, Frio. If you haven't been, yeah. please come, we'll show you around. But it's quite small. It's a community, really. So when we walk around, it's constantly... Hey, how you going? Yeah, oh yeah, we are on the tour. <laughs> and people love it. It's great. So do you know everyone? You're like, oh, no. <laughs> and you walk around the next corner. Oh, hey, how you going? Oh, this is the manager of this venue we just talked to. And they all, everyone's so welcoming. Even strangers will stop us and say, hey, do you know what? We got stopped once in front of the Frio prison. And this bloke said, I've been in there. And they run tours. Oh, have you done a tour in there? Oh, no, mate. 
I've been in there. <laughs> and the three of me and these two women on tour looked at each other like, oh, what's going on? And he said, it was so bad. I didn't go back to prison for another 10 years after that. <laughs> you so just yeah, got to be open to it. Lots of real life, everyday people experiences. Like, people like real. That's the main thing, yeah. Well, I think two names I'll remember is Michael and Lucy Della. So that's definitely names I'll remember. Yeah, the hopefully. And you said that you had four things going, you know, the bike, the... You know, going to the restaurants and the and the bars, and then you guys added another thing on with the cafe. <laughs> Tell us about adding a cafe onto your operation. Oh my word! Oh, it's just so silly. Um, <laughs> so we always joke. So the way it goes is, Fremantle Tours is the business we meant to start, and then mostly sometimes is the business that we accidentally started. So mostly sometimes is the name of our cafe where. We now operate, instead of having an office for the tours specifically, they also run out of the cafe. And, yeah, it's quite a funny story, I guess. In <laughs> so, in Je- so we started the tour company in November and we were in our little office and it was going really good. And then it became apparent that it was time to move. And I was getting my hair cut in the January and... The lady, awesome hairdresser, was doing my hair. I was working for her and her husband at their restaurant at the time. So we'd gone in, we're having a chat, and she knew what we were doing. And she's in this little shared space where it's a retail space. And then there's also a beautician and a hairdresser. And this is kind of this really beautiful, empty hallway in the middle middle of it. It had this big, beautiful mirror, and the building's lovely, all exposed brick and polished concrete floor. And I was like... Do you reckon you could fit 10 bikes in there? <laughs> Quote, unquote. And Siobhan's like, oh my God, Luce, you, sh- you guys should move in here. It would be amazing. And she's like, oh, but they really want there to be a cafe in here. And Mike- and I was like, oh, Michael and I have been saying it'd be great if we had a little cafe. You know, maybe we could just do a few coffees when we're not on tour. And, you know, that could be really cool. And she's like, oh, the owners are just over there. I'll go get them. It was Next so... minute, like Michael came to meet me because he was always going to come meet me after I got my hair cut. And then about an hour and a half later, we looked at each other and we were like... Are we starting a cafe? Because <laughs> it's just so fortuitous. The owners were there. I popped in to say g'day and I'd walk through the shop and I thought the exact same thought process. I went, this is pretty cool. This could... We could put our bikes here. This could work. And then Lucy, first thing she said to me is, what do you think? And then we talked to the owners and we hit it off. And that was... And then oh. we sort of went, oh, I don't know. Do we want to do this? Yeah, we want to do this. How do we want to make it work? And then we said... Bear in mind, we were running out to a business. They're still growing at this stage, so we're not... Don't imagine we're flat strap. But then Lucy was working in a cafe in the day and a restaurant at night. And I was working in a restaurant days and nights. So we were... We didn't have heaps of time available. And we didn't have any money because we had just used it all to invest into starting the tours. And we just thought, no, like this is too weird an opportunity to say no to. Like it all just seemed like it was making sense. And we went down to Lafroy's and we had a coffee and we were like, let's do it. 33 days later, we opened the cafe. <laughs> That's a record possibly. Possibly. Empty space and, um, to a functioning cafe. It's so it's been open for just over six months now, which is really great. And 
It's the first four. We just worked seven days, so we were just working there all the time, and we were both still doing our night shifts at the restaurant, and it was totally crazy. And I wouldn't change it for anything now, but gosh, it feels really nice to be on the other side of that. Um, we've been really lucky since we've opened the cafe since about Easter time. We've both been able to give up working at night, and it's really, it's really allowed us to have more time more focused time to work on Fremantle tours which sounds kind of counterintuitive but when the cafe first opened like it was you know it wasn't busy every second of every day so instead of you know us you know relaxing or chilling out you know we're at the cafe and going okay cool well what emails can we send for Fremantle tours or how do we promote that business through this entire new local clientele that we have coming in to buy coffees every day mm-hmm. so it's been really good exposure for the tour brand. And what did you learn from you know, all of that time that you had experience in hospitality that you could bring to mostly sometimes? Because I understand customer service can be harsh as well and people do have high expectations for coffee mm. especially. So yeah. what did you bring to the table? Well, I have a really, really firm belief about coffee making. So I've been making coffee I'd say probably for about 10 years, but may, you know, I'd say I've been barista working as someone who would say, yeah, quite confidently, like I make coffee for a living for about five, is that it's so much more than the coffee whilst at the same time being about the coffee. So I always say in order for it to be delicious, the person who sells it to you has to be friendly. You must greet them when they walk in the door. You have to be friendly and acknowledge someone. And then you need to make the coffee deliciously, which takes lots of experience, but also, you know, you're always learning. Like I might figure out a new little trick or a hack, you know, tomorrow. And I might meet someone who makes coffee completely differently to me and I'll learn something from them. Like you people get really caught up on the textbook right and wrong ways. And I just don't think in practice that works with coffee so much. And then the third thing is that it needs to be quick. If you pull all these little elements together, if you're friendly to someone, if you remember their order, if the coffee's good and they get to work on time, like, where, how can you go wrong? Happy days. And also, I think my experience that I was able to draw on is from working, I've pretty much always worked in small businesses and been able to see quite closely, you know, times when places are busy and gaps in what was on offer in the surrounding venues is we decided to do the crazy thing and open at 5.30, <laughs> which if you were in the room right now, you can see all three of us are kind of shaking our heads in disbelief because even now I think we're not sure on why we decided to do that. <laughs> but it's definitely been our point of difference. So opening at 5.30 is something that sticks in people's minds because people come into the shop that we're adjoined to and they see our sign and everyone goes, 5.30? In the morning, people are like, that cafe with the funny name that opens at 5.30. So, yeah, it's great. <laughs> and through this time now, working so much in Freo, you live and breathe it now, what is the essence of Freenatal? I've really found we were so surprised how welcoming people were when we came to them with our own idea about starting a cafe in a month or really wanting to promote Fremantle and take people around on tours and say, hey, can I come into your venue? Can I walk into your hotel because you've got this beautiful heritage aspect? Yeah, people are like, yeah, come in. We'll tell you a story. And then 
it reinforces that community. That friendliness, openness is, and uh, accepting nature of Frio, doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, that's, that's something we both adore about Frio. Yeah, I think you could almost go as far to say like that essence of Fremantle is the community. Like Michael just said, it never ceases to amaze us like how supportive people are and how how you can just reach out to people. Like for us, you know, we're really so, so lucky now to have the medium of the cafe to interact with all these different people from Frio who work in totally diverse areas. But, you know, each one to the next is as likely to offer their help in something or we can say, you know, can we help them out in a way? And it's it's so nice. And I think we're really lucky in a, you know, in a day and age where everyone's so busy and so, you know, focused inward on how they can get ahead or what they can do that Fremantle definitely does have that small town feel where people will go out of their way. They'll make it, you know, something that puts them out to help other people. And I, yeah, it's awesome. It's so cool we to all, see that. There's you know? a good analogy about Frio and Perth in that Northridge and Perth is hipster and Frio is a bit more hippie. <laughs> and it's still hipster, like it's trendy, like it's yeah. ridiculously trendy, but you see plenty of people in their shoes and uh, a bit... That, Drinking their soy lattes at the beach. Yeah, <laughs> and I think the same thing that people love about the tours is what people love about Frio is that it's also genuine. And what you see is what you get. There's not that pretentious air, isn't there? You can, it's very accepting and genuine. And if there is a pretentious air, it sticks out like oh, a sore thumb. Man, it's, it's a, yeah. Not a good idea. So what's the future of Fremantle? We are so excited about the Frio future. We've got, we've just seen the start of some huge infrastructure projects in Fremantle. Biggest since building our port. So the biggest in 120 years or so. So they've got their, what they're doing is $270 million project. So it's going to be fantastic. Um, and we're going to see a lot more people living here, which means more people getting into our community and more people coming into the community. So that's just phenomenal. And now we'll move into the rapid fire round where we'll ask some questions about, um, oh, generic questions really. And they come from a podcast that I really enjoy, Tim Ferriss' podcast. Mm. So ask some um, you know, yeah. successful people the same sort of questions. Yeah, and probably. I thought I'd ask you as well. So, uh, favorite book that you would like that you like to gift others? Uh, for both of us, it's the same book actually. Um, it's Cloud Street by Tim Winton, uh, local West Australian, and he just writes so beautifully about Perth and Fremantle and WA. If you had a gigantic billboard anywhere in Fremantle. <laughs> Where would it be and what would it say? So the gigantic billboard would be at the front of the monk up at the top. You know, if you, as you look at the monk's outdoor area, it would go all across the top and it would say, be a nice human. Cool. So the monk is on the Cappuccino Street, right? Which the is the there. main tourist street in Fremantle, the main drag there. Just a reminder to be kind. <laughs> Love it. What is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? Could be money, time, energy. Mm. Oh, my word. I think it would be the amount of time we've given ourselves to be able to really jump into what we want to do. If that's travel and we say, okay, we'll work at it. Or if it's opening a business, say, all right, make it happen and give yourself the time and resource available. What about you? Well, kind of like what you said, but this idea that time spent planning how you're going to spend your time is 
time well spent. (laughs) 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 All the peas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, we spend a lot of time making sure that we use our time well. (laughs) In the last five years, your lives have changed significantly. What's a new belief or behavior or habit that has most improved your life? We have really started probably since Margaret River, so a year and a half, nearly two years ago, um, trying to live a much more intentional life um, and making better choices about that and really doing what you want to be doing with your time. And a big thing that's helped us use that is actually um, minimalism. We're sitting in our house and there's, it's small and it's perfect for us. And that's enabled us to make the deliberate decisions on what to have or not to have has made me with her time to give ourselves or um, the money to maybe travel as much as we have. It all comes from making some pretty deliberate choices. And it's really funny because you hear that word minimalism. It's a bit of like a buzz word, I guess, in some scenes at the moment. But it often it's this idea of starting with your stuff, but then it allows you to be so much more intentional with everything else. And I think what it's really done for us is living this sort of lifestyle has allowed us to work less because we are more in control of our outgoing, say, in a financial sense that allows us to grow and develop these crazy business ideas because we're not under the stress of, you know, sort of like the money stresses that we're under, you know, have been under at different times or Or just tired and fatigued, that work stress being able to say no to things, to say yes to others has been so important. And we're both just so happy that we're, able to learn these different ways of living that have just opened our mind to just all these different things that we can do and it makes everything seem so much more manageable yeah frees up your brain great we oh, we love the dockers the love Fremantle them. dockers mm. that's mighty Fremantle bleeding purple here. it's yeah. brought us together very many times <laughs> a, a common love and a common passion of this town uh, so who's your, this is probably the most ser- serious question of the, mm. of the podcast. Who's your most uh, favourite Fremantle Docker player of all time? Ah, for me, it's Cookie. Troy Cook, I think, is just hard as nails. Would always get the job done. It's a player from yesteryear, but he would just, gosh, he inspired me heaps as a, when I used to play footy as a kid. So, My favourite player is Michael Walters. Um, it's a no-brainer for me. I think, you know, Fremantle's had their ups and downs, but if you get the ball to Sun Sun, something good always happens. So, you know, you've got to back him for that. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Michael and Lucy, legends of the game. (laughs) Ciao for now. Hey, everyone. Wherever you are in the world, thanks heaps for listening to Frio de Janeiro. You can visit the show website, abidimam.com, A-B-I-D-I-M-A-M, for all of the show goodies. You can subscribe, leave a review. appreciate it very much. And until the next episode, keep smiling, keep scoring.